This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Pain in the Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin has posted 100,000 troops on the border of the small European nation and appears poised for an invasion. The latest conflict between communism and democracy threatens to destabilize Europe. And why is the United States so concerned? Here to explain the Ukraine situation is Los Angeles Times foreign editor Jeffrey Fleischman. Hello, Jeff. Hey, Gary, how you doing? All right. Hey, thanks for joining us. Yeah. There's been so many stories about this. I want you to just kind of give us an overview of how this developed and um, kind of where we are right now. Yeah, I think the best way to frame this, Jerry, is that um, Vlad- Russian President Vladimir Putin is a, a real child of the Cold War. He was, a, he was in the KGB in East Berlin as he witnessed the Berlin Wall fall. And he has, he has long said that the, the, the demise of the former Soviet Union was one of the 20th century's great catastrophes. So he's never seen the breakup of the former Soviet Republic as anything desirable at all. And of course, Ukraine fits into that equation, not only because it was sort of the breadbasket of, of, uh, of the Soviet Union and economically important, but mythologically, it, it held a great place in the, in the Russian spirit. And I think with Ukraine drifting again toward the West, like so many former Soviet republics have done, uh, Putin feels a real pressure of an encroachment on NATO on what he feels is his sphere of influence and should be a buffer zone. And I think as we saw in 2014, when he went into Crimea and he's not willing to take this, and and this is another very big indication that he's not willing to take it. Now, whether how much of this is posturing and how much of this is when you put 100,000 plus troops on the border and you got to do something with them relatively soon. So um, he's really ratcheted up uh, the, the tensions, not only in Ukraine, but uh, but around Europe and, of course, in Washington. And I remember him saying that, that, that the breakup was the geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Is he trying to come back and go get those states back? You know that's a, uh, that's the question, right? I mean, is he is he so wrapped up in the folklore and uh, and uh, not the folklore even, but the, the reality of that time where the where uh, where the lost Russian prestige is so great that he's he's willing to to breach a war for it to to uh, to collect what the past has already taken away from him. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's uh, that's in his thinking, but he does. He does, in his mind, legitimately see uh, a strong NATO uh, on in former Soviet republics, you know, Poland, etc., and up in the Baltics. That uh, that it's making him him uncomfortable. And I think every now and then, as I said again in, in 2014, he did. He needs to push back. But this is really pushing back in a, in a big way because it's going to send ripples across Europe. It's going to send economic consequences from oil and gas to trade to everything else and uh, and you know what it will do to world markets as well so um it's a big it's a big gamble and it's interesting because it makes me think of when hitler went into poland you know that whole that was such a big break in world war ii and a big uh probably not that grave but it it, it kind of seems like the same equation yeah yeah there's uh, i think the, the the thing to remember here is that um 
is that ahead of time, we've told Washington, uh, the Biden administration has told, has let Ukraine and Europe know we, we will not be sending uh, we will not be sending forces on the ground in Ukraine. I mean, we did send 3,000 additional troops to Eastern Europe to, to buffer some of the uh, NATO forces already existing, but we made it clear at the beginning that we would not we would not take that battle on inside Ukraine. So we sort of played our hand uh, right away, which left uh, which let Russia um, dictate a lot of the terms about how fast this thing unfolds and what the consequences are to to it if it does if it does invade. Um, I think it's it's looking at, I think from the Russian perspective, you have to look at if we, it'll be a relatively easy, easy invasion. I mean, you've got the sea already blockaded off. It can come in from three different border border angles. Uh, it can get to Kiev probably relatively quickly. The question is, does it want to does it want to fight a sustained rebel war uh, with well armed which, which would be well, well-armed Ukrainian soldiers and armed forces for a long time. Uh, the Russians, when they fought in Chechnya, the Russian public did not like all those Russian soldier body bags coming home. And uh, I don't imagine they'd, they'd uh, take, it, uh, take it as well this time either. Well, Jim, President Biden has been very involved in this, and he has sent messages that, hey, this will result in sanctions. Why is the interest of the U.S. so high? I think... For what it will do to, uh, I think for what it will do to Russia. I mean, I'm sorry, to Europe. Uh, you have different. You know, Germany's been the latecomer uh, of this. I mean, Germany's been a disappointment to the U.S. and some European countries for not stepping up more forcefully and and giving its uh, and giving its commitment to backing the Ukraine. But that's because Germany, as as with much of Europe, relies on European gas and and other resources, and they're not willing mm-hmm. to publicly take such a stance where it could really hurt them economically. I mean, it all comes down like any war does to economics and what side of that equation you're on. Uh, but I also think uh, after after the years of Trump administration, when when the U.S. tried to degrade the the our um, our relationship and our strong ties with NATO countries, Biden's trying to rebuild them. Yeah. This is a, this is, again, another test case of that. Yeah. And we always throw the term NATO around North Atlantic Treaty Organizations, which is a lot of the Western nations, Great Britain, us, the, the, the European nations there. So tell us a little bit about the Minsk Accord. I've been reading about this, and this may be, a, um, I guess, a diplomatic way to get around this. How does that work? Well, I mean, they're just they're just trying. I think they're just trying to get around it in in, in, in so many different ways. You know, they, they just want a commitment from, I mean, Russia's main thing is it wants a commitment that there'll be no more further expansion of NATO toward 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 Russia territory and in, mm-hmm. and in the former Soviet republics. And two, it wants what, what the U.S. is not willing to give is, well, number one, the, the U.S. is not willing to give that. Uh, and two, the U.S. is not willing to say what Russia really wants, and that is to, Tell us categorically that um, that Ukraine will not be brought into the NATO fold, and and I think diplomatically, probably back channels and behind the scenes, uh, the Americans and the Europeans are saying, "Hey, listen, we know we we invite any country that wants to come into NATO if they qualify. Mm-hmm. We know that Ukraine's not going to qualify for at least a decade. So why are you worrying about it? <laughs> right? But, um, yeah. Yeah. but, uh, but, 
but, but Putin wants that assurance now, and he's 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 put 120 or 30,000 troops on the border to get it. And it seems a lot of posturing, right? Like you say, there's no war there. There's no you know tensions necessarily. It just seems to be posturing over principle of communism, democracy, all the USSR versus Russia today. Yeah, a lot of a lot of Cold War ghosts have been resurrected and kind of scattered about, and that, and that's exactly sort of what we're looking at. Actually, I talked to our correspondent who was in who was in uh, in Ukraine today, and he said the the mood, and I and I think this is typical, and it's also it's also important to remember uh, from inside a country uh, what the mood is versus all the clamor and hysteria you hear from outside the country for various political and diplomatic reasons. Not to underplay the uh, severity of what really is at the Ukraine border and how this could turn into an invasion. But the Ukrainians are taking it, and probably it's the, the Slavic uh, dark heart sort of, uh, not to, not to yeah. draw too many metaphors, but saying, hey, we've been here before. They invaded us right. in 2014. We know what it's like, and we're not really that flustered. So up until this morning, at least, um, uh, our, our reporter who had been traveling the country didn't, didn't get a sense of alarm from inside mm. Ukraine and a number of politicians had told him, "Why does your government keep ratcheting this up? It's almost like they're, they're, they're pushing these guys into it." So. That's funny, uh, and it was interesting because I did see, um, you know, Russian citizens—I mean, uh, Ukrainian citizens—training. And they've got their guns out and saying, hey, if you're coming in, we're, we're joining the fight. And as you said, um, it, it almost becomes a civil war in a sense. And, and there's um, a lot of body bags. President, um, the French president, President Macron, is it, has played a big role in this. What is uh, why has he stepped up so much? Well, I think uh, I, I think I think he's he's uh, he stepped up because there's always been uh, the dynamic in Europe about who was going to lead Europe uh, in, in, in post-World War II age. And Britain's out and Brexit, you know, they're, they're, they're out of the equation. Sure. It's always been between Paris and Berlin. Angela Merkel was a formidable, formidable Western presence and probably took over uh, during Trump's, Trump's administration, took over sort of the leader of the quote-unquote free world. Um, and I think she, with, with, her, uh, with her being out of office and their new... Chancellor um, Olaf Scholz, in, who doesn't appear to have the, uh, the same kind of tenacity as far as engaging these kinds of things, so he's just feeling his way in. Macron, uh, to his credit, I think a lot of people say, is seizing the opportunity to step into that vacuum and sees himself uh, as a real player who, if he can pull this off, um, would be quite an accomplishment. So he, in earnest, has begun doing this shuttle diplomacy uh, along with, uh, you know, Secretary of State Blinken for the U.S. So uh, I think Macron is sort of trying to raise his profile across Europe a bit more. And what does the United States have? What kind of sanctions can they impose? This this always reminds me of the Kramer versus Kramer movie where the little kid's going to get the ice cream and Dustin Hoffman saying, hey, if you get on that chair, if you get on that table, you know, and the kid just keeps getting the ice cream. What can we do about this? Yeah, well, I mean... It, Putin has had sanctions and he's kept eating his ice cream. So um, <laughs> I, I think I think uh, he's faced him for years. So I I think these sanctions, uh, as the U.S. as the U.S. is, if it imposes what it says it's going to impose, I think that some of the biggest things would be um, freezing SWIFT accounts of how 
money moves internationally into different bank accounts. And that could really hit the people close to Putin. Um, and so if it really does a targeted attack on those around, those oligarchs and billionaires that sustain Putin both in and out of the country, that could cause some rilement within, uh, within Russia. And it would also, if they went after the banks and other things in a big way, what Putin has to, what Putin has to face is that the Russian public is not ready for this war. Uh, mm-hmm. They don't necessarily want it. They, they've got tough mm-hmm. economic times. They've got a bunch of other stuff going on. And mm-hmm. some might argue, well, Putin is doing this because it's a, it's a diversion. It's a, it, it'll, he'll know when they go to war, it'll rouse the, you know, the Russian yeah. motherland patriotic uh, ethos and, and he'll be Right. It's a big, mm-hmm. it's a big risk. And um, in terms of kind of going forward, what do you see happen? It's kind of a standoff right now. What do you think? You, what do you think we'll, we'll be seeing over the next few weeks? I don't know. I mean, that that's uh, not to use a cliche, man, but that's a roll of the dice at this point because, um, as I said, you have almost 130,000 troops on the border. You have your naval, your navy blockading the sea, and you keep and you keep the tension keeps increasing each day. Um, who knows what could start? Could it be a stray shot from the separatist rebels in the east? Could it be some manufactured false flag op, uh, you know, operation that the U.S. has been claiming that Russia is trying to orchestrate? I mean, in, in any kind of combustible situation like this, something unexpected could could start a war. So, I mean, I really I don't think anyone at this point would be surprised if if this drags out another two months or if um, if within over the weekend something happens, uh, you know, a, a large-scale invasion. And President Biden said no troops, but, I mean, maybe, will we see troops, maybe we see U.S. troops there? Uh, I don't think so, no. I don't think I don't think after the, the disastrous 20 years in Afghanistan and the, and mm-hmm. the disastrous a- exit that, that there's any stomach yeah. by Americans to go anywhere else. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit. I express my condolences over the loss of your father. Um, what a great man. And um, he was involved in the, in the conflict, communism, democracy, uh, conflict in Vietnam. Tell us a little bit about his service. Yeah, he, he and, and, and he thought highly of you, Jerry. I'm glad you got to know him over the years. Thank you. Um, yeah, my dad was an interesting creature um, in that uh, full military man, um, commander in the Navy, sort of served two tours in in Vietnam, but a true patriot, but uh, in the best sense, I think, of a patriot. He understood when America was wrong and American foreign policy was wrong. And I think his years in Vietnam taught him that. Mm-hmm. And I remember growing up with him and he'd go to the piers and, and on his ship and everything, but he would come home and he would talk bluntly about, you know, about where he thought, um, you know, Politics got involved in, in the military too much, and and how and how things were were going off off course. And so he he was uh, I think he was a in that way he was a true soldier because he would uh, you know he 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 just kept the country first, and he understood that the politics weren't always necessarily serving the country. So you do your duty when he, when your country says we need you, you do your duty. Yeah, and but you do your duty, but you can, you can question it too. But in the end, right? I mean, he he did uh, he did two tours in Vietnam. The first tour, I think, uh, he just really believed that, um, like so many of them, that you were fighting communism and that this was a just and noble cause. I think his second duty, his second tour, when he was doing when he was on the ground doing intelligence and and doing some flying, and uh, when he actually saw the war, 
up close the first time he was there with his on the ship and the second time he i think then it sort of i think the true veil was lifted for him as a military man and what was happening in vietnam and one of the neat things about him and and you know i got to know him because i was at the Orlando sentinel he lived in the suburbs in a popkin we'd spend some time together and a great sense of humor great storyteller um just a real gentle man in the definition of the word but he spent years in ROTC. Tell us a little bit about his work there. Yeah, he he was a big he was a big um, proponent of that. I mean, he he got out of the uh, when he got out of the navy. He, he I think he always wanted to be a teacher. He always saw himself as mm-hmm. as as wanting to be part of that. And I think he liked the academic world. He liked the intellectualism of it. He liked exploring things. Um, he spoke you know different languages. He spoke Latin and he spoke German. And so he th- he thought that if he could give back to kids in ROTC in some way, guide them uh, toward whether, you know, eventually, you know, at least four years in the military when they left, but something that would sort of stabilize and help their lives. And for some kids, that is the military as they're coming up. And I thought, I think he saw that as a vital part in developing character, not only character, but intellect and, 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 a, and a well-rounded person. And it, it's great because, you know, by doing each, you know, working with each student, that's a ripple, that's a ripple in the pond and that ripples for generations. So his work will be, will be carrying on for, for many years. And uh, we give him one final salute. What a great guy. And you were a very lucky man. Yeah. And, and thank you. And, and one of the, th- one of the real tributes to him and boy, this guy's name is escaping me right now, but he's a, my dad actually taught, um, uh, who is a, a, an officer who's now an admiral in the U.S. Navy, and mm. uh, and he had reached out to my dad some months ago when my dad was still in Florida, and he sent him a letter saying that you were you were the pivotal moment of why I became where I am right now. So thank wow. you. It just kind of That's came really out. Wow. Uh, so and my dad I, felt great, you know, as sure. well. You know how it is if you're a teacher, right? If you can just sure. you want to touch sure. as many lives as you can, but if you can get one and you kind of change it, that, it helps. That's all you need is one. And right. that's you know, my son and I were talking about it. that's a, what's called a legacy and he, he definitely has a legacy there. So uh, sorry about that and uh, good man and uh, you know, just good to remember. Final salute to that. As you know, Jerry, he did he was a man of few words, but he was uh, <laughs> right. sometimes that's getting right. him to talk. Like, you would know, ask a question. My dad did not mind dead air. He did not mind dead air. Yeah. Yes, but, exactly. But when, he, but when he spoke, he said something. So that was good. That's right. And that, that was key. That was key. Well, thanks again for joining us, pal. I know you're under the gun with this Ukraine situation, and we appreciate you uh, coming on and, uh, and hanging with us. Yeah, always a pleasure, Jerry. Take care, man. All right. Yeah. And we will be back next week with another edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. We want to wish a happy Valentine's Day to everyone and send you this little Valentine's uh, card I put together, a little essay about what I learned, um, you know, kind of the important lessons I learned about marriage through my dad and my mother who were married for 42 years. So listen up a little bit. The greatest lesson I ever learned about love oddly came on the day that my mom died. She lingered for the whole weekend and we couldn't understand what she was holding on to. Dad was in the hospital with Alzheimer's disease and when Sunday morning arrived, the nurse told us that mom only had a few more hours to live. Should we bring dad home? My brothers and sisters said no, he wouldn't understand. 
But I believe this man who loved this woman for 50 years had the right to be standing by her side when she left this world. Within an hour of him walking into our house, mom got ready to take her last breath. She was waiting for him. We all gathered around her, held a piece of her, and he grabbed her hand, gazing into her face. She took her last breath, and as the huddle broke in tears and sniffles, Dad maintained his grip, gazing into her face. You can let go now, Pop, I said, but he wouldn't. Then I had to do the hardest thing I ever did in my life. I pulled their hands apart. It was the end of 42 years of broken hot water heaters and emergency room visits with injured kids and putting toys together on Christmas Eve. As sad as the time was, I was also very curious. What would be the first words out of this man's mouth? He could have said anything. Who's gonna wash my clothes? Who's gonna cook my breakfast? Who's gonna walk me to church? But as I led him into an adjacent room, he plopped down on the sofa and said, I just lost my best friend. And that was it. That was the secret of their love. To them, your spouse didn't have to be rich or beautiful or this age or that. They just had to be your best friend. Um, we'll be back next week with another edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. And always remember to read beyond the headlines. Thank you. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.